0: One of the most often repeated biblical commands is the command to love one another. Jesus said in John 13, 34 and 35, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Jesus commands his disciples to love one another and and proof that we are his disciples is that love for one another. A little while later in John 15 verses 12 and 13, again, Jesus says, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this that someone lay down his life for his friends. We are to love one another as Jesus has loved us and laid down his life for us, and we're to follow his example in loving one another. The Apostle John picked up on this and emphasized it in his epistle. He says in First John 4, 7, and 8, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. 1 John 4, 11 and 12, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. And then again in verses 20 and 21, if anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. The Apostle Paul also emphasized our duty to love one another. In Galatians 5.13, he says, Through love serve one another. In Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, it says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. In his prayer for the Thessalonians, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians three twelve, And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. And again in 1 Thessalonians 4, 9, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. God himself teaches the believer to love other believers. And we recognize one another as the children of God. 2 Thessalonians, Paul gives thanks to God Because of your faith, because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Again, the author of Hebrews says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. That's Hebrews 10.24. And not to leave Peter out. 1 Peter 1.22 says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. For a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. And again, first Peter four eight above all, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. This love for one another is not only found in the New Testament. Jesus said that the greatest commandment in the Old Testament was the command to love God. This is from Matthew twenty-two thirty-six 36 to 38. A, a, a Pharisee or a teacher asked him, uh, a, a lawyer maybe it was, asked him and said, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment and that's from Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 5 and then Jesus said this Matthew 22:39 a second is like it you shall love your neighbor as yourself on these commandments on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets to love your neighbor as yourself that's from Leviticus 19:18 And so the scriptures of both the Old and New Testaments command us to love, to love one another, to love your neighbor, and even to love your enemy. Now biblical love is not like what our culture teaches. Our culture views love as a feeling, or maybe a set of feelings that another person gives to you, and as long as those nice feelings continue, there is love between the two people. But biblical love, it it does feel for another person, but love isn't dependent on feelings. Love gives oneself to benefit another person. You see, Jesus loved us by giving himself up for us. Jesus loved us by laying down his life for us. And he benefited us by reconciling us to God. He gave his life as a sacrifice so that by his sacrifice, we might enjoy God. Jesus laid down his life to pay the penalty for our sins so that we could be made right with a holy God, so that we might enjoy God. And so love sacrifices itself to benefit others. And the higher the benefit, the greater the love. We learned in our FOF study on Wednesday that God himself is the greatest good. God is the, the good of goods or, or whatever we saw there on last on Wednesday night. But the highest love then is to point people to God, the greatest good, that they might know him and love him and serve him. And so biblical love is giving up of oneself to help another one walk close with God and to enjoy him. Now, you might wonder, why am I introducing this message with these commandments to love one another? Well, it's because in Matthew chapter 18, which is where we are, we've been learning that we are to care for one another enough to pursue one another if one of us goes astray. We've been learning that we are our brother's keeper, that we're to help one another walk closely with God. And confront one another when we seem to be going in the wrong direction. And it's this love that seeks to win a a brother or a sister back who is going astray. And so again, we're in Matthew chapter 18. And last week we looked at really just the first part of verse 15. We're going to kind of try to cover some more ground today. Let's read our text again, our, our, our section anyways. Matthew 18 starting in verse 15. what to do if another believer sins. And I I said that there are six commands here. Jesus is teaching us how to love one another when one of us goes astray. And the first thing that we're to do, the first thing that we saw even last week is when another believer sins, we're to, number one, we're to show them their sin. And that's again in the first part of verse 15. Jesus says, if your brother sins, go tell him his fault. Now, the word sins there assumes that your brother has actually committed a sin and that he should be rebuked for it. When one of us is in sin or is caught in a sin, it's our job, all of our job, to go to that person and show them their sin. Now, I don't want to cover what we looked at in depth last time, but simply put, love would have us go to our brother and help him recognize his or her sin. Commentator R.T. France says about this word, tell him his fault. He says, quote, it's not easy to capture the force of this word in a single English word. It includes the related ideas of reprimand, of bringing the wrong to light, of trying to bring the person to recognize that they are in the wrong, and of correcting them, end quote. And so we are first to talk with our brother and show them their error, We talk to him or her privately. We don't talk to somebody else. And I want to go now to the Old Testament parallel passage in Leviticus 19. Now, I already read and quoted from Leviticus 19.18, Love your neighbor as yourself. But let's go to Leviticus, and I want to show you the context here. So Leviticus chapter 19. We can start reading in verse 15. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord." You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now the context here is loving one's neighbor. And some of what that means from this passage that we just read is that it means that we're going to uh, execute justice rather than show partiality, verse 16. It means that we're going to reason with our neighbor rather than slandering him to others. And there's a contrast here between love and hate, between warning your neighbor, reasoning frankly with him versus slandering or, or reasoning frankly versus bearing a grudge or taking vengeance against your neighbor. And so there's kind of two extremes. There's slander or vengeance. And the alternate on the other side is to talk with your neighbor. And so you can either slander your neighbor or take vengeance on your neighbor, but we're not to do that. Instead, we're to love our neighbor. We're to reason frankly with our neighbor. On the one hand, we have hate. On the other hand, we have uh, love. Love. And love would have us have a conversation, even a, a frank conversation with our neighbor, not to talk to our neighbor, not to confront our neighbor, is a form of hate. And it's implied here that if we don't speak with our neighbor, it's. if you look at it again, uh, what verse is it? In, um, in the end of verse 17, "...lest you incur sin because of him." And so if we don't speak with our neighbor, it is to incur sin because of him. Now, implied in this whole context, Leviticus 19, is that our neighbor has sinned. And our responsibility then is to do what we have been seeing in Matthew 18. Go tell him his fault between you and him alone. Go and reason frankly with your neighbor. And doing so, again, it's an act of love. Now that's kind of just a, a little bit of review from last week where to, to show them their sin. Now the next command when another believer sins, let's go back to Matthew 18. The next command when another believer sins reminds us of the goal and the purpose behind what Jesus says here. And our goal in this whole process, and it's number two in our outline today, the, the goal is number two, win them back. And this is the second part. Of Matthew 18, 15, the second part, sec- section B, we sometimes call it. Jesus says there, If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. And so we've gone to our brother and sister, we've shown them their sin. And again, we're talking about sin here. We're not talking about preferences. We're not talking about matters of conscience or matters of Christian liberty. Jesus is envisioning here a a genuine sin. One that the person either is unrepentant over or perhaps they're unaware of. And so there's a a sin in this person's life. They're either ignorant to it or they're continuing in it without repentance. And the goal of our going is a a pastoral concern for that person's spiritual welfare. It's a pastoral concern that, that every believer is to share. It's not just for pastors, but it's for every believer. And so we go with this loving concern and we show them their sin. Now again, assuming here that it truly is a sin, whether it's again in doctrine or in practice, there's, there's really only two possible outcomes. When we go to this person, they're either going to listen or they're not going to listen. And so here we're talking about the first option and, and he listens. And this is this is great. This, he listens. You, you went to your brother, and he hears you out. He listens. And it carries the idea here of listening and hearing and heeding, and even sometimes of obedience, this, this listening here. And that's the sense here. You go, and you show your brother his sin, and he repents, and he hears you, and he responds to the correction. And what we've got here is really the best possible case. We've won our brother back. Now there's a parallel passage to our section in Luke chapter 17, and I want you to look at that one with me. Luke chapter 17. Verses 1-4. to Jesus is speaking. He said to His disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, And so if he sins, we rebuke. If he repents, forgives. And so what we see then is listening in our text, listens in our verses, is really equivalent to repents in Luke 17 and verse 3. Now I'm going to come back to this idea of forgiveness in a bit, but let's go back, look at our text. Hopefully you still got your your marker in there. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. And the word gained here is a financial term and it's it's used literally for finances. It means to acquire something by a, an effort or to acquire something by an investment that you make. Here it's used figuratively of a person and the idea is to win this person. In 1 Corinthians 9:19 to 22, Paul uses this word for winning people to Christ. And he's thinking about evangelism and salvation in that context, and he's gaining souls by winning them to Christ. In First Peter chapter 3 and verse 1, this word is used of a wife winning an unbelieving husband to salvation. First Peter 3, 1 and 2 says, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husband's so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one, there's our word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. James speaks about the same thing, winning a person back. James five nineteen and 20, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, And someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. And so James tells us that if we can do this, if we can turn somebody back, we save their soul from death. All sin leads to death in one way or another. Sin kills, right? Sin kills relationships. It ruins lives. It it wrecks everything in our lives. It, It kills everything that it touches, and ultimately, it leads to hell. And so when we turn someone from sin, according to James, we save them from that death. And when we're dealing with a brother or sister in sin, sometimes we don't know their true spiritual condition. Perhaps they aren't even saved. We could be dealing with a believer, or we could be dealing with an unbeliever. Again, not everyone who calls themselves a Christian is a Christian. Not everyone who calls themselves a Christian is truly born again. And so if we win them back, it's possible that we're actually winning them in that case to genuine salvation. And in that case, we fully save their soul from death. It's also possible that this is a person that they are a genuine believer. In which case we have all the more hope of success because although it's possible for a true believer to be grievously caught in sin or to be grievously caught in error, it's possible that 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 could happen, but God will eventually restore such a one. And God will keep his true children faithful to the end. And he will bring us back. He will bring us back if we're caught in sin. likely he's going to do that through another brother or sister who comes to them according to our text, again, Matthew eighteen fifteen, And so if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. And that's our goal. Our goal is to win this person back. And if we succeed at this point, we rejoice. And where necessary, it won't always be necessary, but where necessary, we forgive that person. To forgive means to release, to let something go. And it's to relinquish the debt that the person owes us. And when we talk about forgiveness, we often will talk about what, what we call the four promises of forgiveness. The first promise of forgiveness is, if I forgive somebody of their sin against me, number one, I'm not going to dwell on it. I'm not going to think about it. I'm not going to kind of mull over it in my mind. I'm going to try to get it out of my mind and release it, let it go. Number two, second promise of forgiveness is, I'm not going to bring this incident up. And use it against the person. I'm not gonna use it against you. You've sinned against me. I've forgiven you. I'm not gonna bring it up. I'm not gonna use it against you any longer. Then number three, I'm not gonna talk to others about this incident. So I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna talk about this incident. It's, it's over. It's been forgiven. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna bring it up, especially in the sense of using it against this other person. And then the fourth promise of forgiveness is, I'm not going to allow this incident to stand between us or to hinder our personal relationship. It's, it's no longer between us. It's forgiven. I've let it go. It's not going to stand between us or hinder our relationship. Now, those are general principles on forgiveness, and sometimes it, it might require a slight kind of adjustment in a specific case, but generally speaking, that is what forgiveness looks like. And so you release the person and you release the sin and you promise to let it go and to no longer let it define your relationship. And so if your brother listens, that's the end. You forgive where needed. You gain your brother. You rejoice like the shepherd that we saw in our previous verses and the relationship is restored. And that's it. You don't talk about it. You don't tell others about it. It stays between you and him alone. And again, this is general. There could be a time where where it should go beyond and and others should be told. For example, if if someone committed a crime, the authority should be told. If it was a theft, then then the person from whom the thing was stolen should the the thing should be returned, it should be restored. And so so there might be a, a time where you go and and you the person who committed the sin needs to go and tell somebody else and, and restore what was stolen. If it was very serious and a relapse could possibly hurt others, then true repentance is going to involve a willingness to accept accountability. And so there, there might be times where we need to kind of tweak the general things, but, but generally speaking, this is what we do. Typically, this would be the end and the sin, whatever it was, stays between you and him alone. But sadly, it's not always going to go that well. And sometimes your brother won't listen and he won't repent and he won't turn from his sin. Now, sometimes it could be that he actually didn't sin. Sometimes that could be that because he loves his sin and, and he refuses to give it up. And in that case, we love our brother too much to just simply leave them alone, and so Jesus gives us another command. If, if they won't listen and they continue in their sin, then we need to go and, and do something else. This is number three then in your outline. We need to bring witnesses. We need to bring witnesses. The, the third command here, this, what we sometimes call the second step in church discipline, but this is number three in your outline. Matthew 18, verse 16, but if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And so you've been faithful. You've spoken with your brother in sin. You've done uh, done this with right motives to win them back and to turn them from their sin back to following Jesus. You went in love, but, but he or she would not listen. What do you do now? Well, you try again, but you try again with an expanded group. You you go again, and this time you don't go alone. You take another person, or perhaps you take two other people, and so now there are two or three of you. Now, these others are not necessarily witnesses of the sin. It could be that they were, but it also could be that that this this was a private sin that only you know about, but these witnesses are going to come, and they're going to establish the charge. And they come as witnesses to determine the situation. Now, when they come, and if you're ever involved in something like this, you, you don't come on one side or the other. They they come in a sense to, to really hear the case, to hear the situation. And their role is to confirm the whole situation. And, and they're going to ask things like, was there or was there not a sin? Was the sin shown to the person who sinned? Did they understand that they are in sin? were they called to repentance. And if there was a sin, the witnesses are to do once again what the first person did. In other words, they're, they're going to try to show the sinner their sin and, and call them to repentance, call them back to faithfulness. And so they go and they, they gently restore that person caught in sin. Now on the other side, it's possible that there was no sin. It's possible that the first person wrongly accused his brother of things that are not or were not sins. Perhaps it was a a preference issue rather than a sin. Perhaps it was an area of Christian freedom and not sin. See, there's a, a kind of legalism that makes sins out of preferences or external things. You know, some of you have kind of faced this a little bit. You've been maybe accused of sin because you have a tattoo, Or you've been accused of sin because you wear makeup or because you wear jewelry or because you wear pants. Those things are not sins in and of themselves. And, you know, wearing white shoes to church, that's not a sin. The witnesses need to kind of discern if the accusation of sin is truly a sin or if it's in the realms of differences of opinion, preferences, areas of liberty. And it's not always going to be an easy task to kind of discern those things, But that's what these witnesses are to do. You see, an obstinate person could just wrongly accuse someone of sin and go to them demanding repentance. And when that person says, well, that thing is not a sin, then this obstinate person could say, ah, they won't repent. They they won't do what, what God calls them to do. They're set in their sin. And so the witnesses are there to help in a case like that. Another area where these witnesses will be very necessary is to protect the accused. Yeah, another area where where my notes are a little bit confusing at this point, but another area where this kind of comes in is when when people are offended. Uh, An offense, according to the Oxford English Dictionary, is an annoyance, or resentment brought about by a perceived insult or disregard for oneself or one's standards or principles. Let me read that again. An offense is an annoyance or resentment brought about by a perceived insult to or a disregard for oneself or one's standards or principles. Now, when we're talking about offenses, you know, just because you didn't like the way that something was done. Or you didn 't like how someone spoke to you or, you or you didn't like something else maybe you didn 't like how something was done or, or how something was said that doesn't necessarily make something a sin just because it annoys you or or uh, insults you whatever it might be doesn't mean that it was a sin now Not everything that you don't like is a sin, and and you're not the ultimate standard of what is right, and I'm not the ultimate standard of what is right either. And so the witnesses now, they come and and they distinguish the true nature of the case. Now the wording that Jesus uses in verse 16 is based on Deuteronomy chapter 19. And so where Jesus says in our text that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses... That comes from Deuteronomy 19, and I, I want you to turn there and, and look at it there in Deuteronomy. I'm going to read verses 19 to 20. I'm going to read verses 15 to 20 of Deuteronomy 19. So Deuteronomy 19, starting in verse 15. A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. If a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who are in the office in those days. The judges shall inquire diligently, And if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. So you shall purge the evil from your midst, and the rest shall hear and fear, and shall never again commit any such evil among you. And we can just stop there. Now this is a a great section, and, and it has to do with courts and a judge. But the principle here, Jesus applies it to to any wrong or to any offense. And in fact, it even says in verse 15, for any crime or any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. But we want to recognize that there's the possibility of a malicious witness or a malicious accuser accusing another brother. In a cr- criminal case in Deuteronomy 19, the two witnesses would, would actually need to be witnesses of the crime. In our text, what the witnesses witness is they witness the whole conversation with everyone involved. And they may end up being witnesses. They may end up serving as witnesses in the next step, but they don't have to have been present for the original sin. And so going back to our text then, we, we ask then, well, who should be these witnesses? Who should serve as these witnesses? Well, the first thing we want to note about that is that Jesus doesn't actually say, so there's some flexibility. It doesn't have to be a pastor. It doesn't have to be an elder, but it could be. There could be times, actually, when it's best not to bring a pastor or an elder for this second step. Or it could be good to, you know, I think generally speaking, it's good to have somebody who's knowledgeable about the situation, somebody who's close to both people who are involved, it should be, of course, another Christian, preferably another Christian from the same local church. It should be a person, who, generally speaking, known for their wisdom and godliness. It should be a person who's not going to show partiality. But there's flexibility here, and so there's going to be people who would be able to do this better than others. I should say here, too, we need to remember that where we are here as we think about, you know, Jesus in the context here, where, where he is in salvation history. This is important. See, Jesus is speaking about his church, but the church hasn't actually been established yet. And that's gonna happen after the resurrection. And so it'd be premature for Jesus to have spoken about, you know, elders and pastors at this point. The disciples, they weren't ready for all that yet. This is only the second time in the Gospels that we even have a mention of the church. And so if Jesus is going to start presuming the leadership structure of the church, the disciples are going to go, what are you talking about? What, what, who, who are these elders? Uh, we've never heard about this thing. And so um, we just need to remember that that it's it, it, it's not likely that Jesus is going to mention the elders and pastors at this point because the disciples don't even hardly understand that there's going to be a church. But usually, I would say, usually it would be good at this point to include a pastor or an elder in this second step. But again, we're not going to make it a law. Now, Jesus doesn't say this, but it's implied here that if there was a sin, and if the person hears the two or three, then they have won their brother. And it's really the same as what we just saw in verse 15b. They, they forgive the person, they rejoice, they restore the person to faithfulness and repentance. The goal is accomplished, the brother is won, the, the case is over, it's finished, and we've won our brother. But if that brother or sister does not listen to the two or three, then we need to go further and we need to try one more time And this is number four in your outline. Tell the church. Tell the church. Verse 17, the first part. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Now, refuses to listen there is slightly stronger than verse 16 where it says does not listen. Refuses to listen means to pay no attention to something. It's it's something that somebody's heard but it's not it's not uh attention isn't paid to it. It means to ignore or to refuse to listen, to disobey. And so the person in sin, in this case they were in sin and they would not turn, they refused to listen to the two or three. They did not listen to the one person, now they would not listen to him with one or two others. And now we're to tell everyone about the situation. Now, until now, it's been very private. It's only between, been between one and now two more. But now this thing goes public. And Jesus says, tell it to the church. And the reason to tell the church at this point is not to shame the person for their sin. It's not to shun them. It's not to embarrass them. It's not to kind of exercise some kind of authority over them. The reason is the same as it's been the whole time. The reason is to seek to win our brother back. And the hope is that they're going to listen to the church. And every member or every member who can would go to the person and say, brother, this is a sin. You're in spiritual danger. Come back to Christ. Come back to righteousness. Turn from this sin. It's going to ruin your life. And the whole church then gets involved in love and they urge the person to repent. R.T. France, uh, again, rightly said, quote, The speak to the church must presumably require a public statement when the community is gathered. And then he puts in brackets, rather than a whispering campaign, end quote. And so we're to tell the church in a public statement when we are gathered. And so at one of our gatherings, the whole church would be informed of the sin. And we would say, who sinned? And we would say what the sin was. And we would encourage everyone to go and now show this person their fault. Now, this notice would, would go through the elders who would be responsible to tell it to the church. And so the elders would, would kind of probably prepare a statement, and we would read that statement before the Lord's Supper. Now, something to note here, I think, that's helpful is that Jesus doesn't give a timeline. And in most cases, there would be a time between each step. Time and prayer would be allowed. And this third step would likely be done after formally writing to the person in a letter, giving them time to repent. And it would most likely say, on such and such a Sunday, we're going to proceed according to Matthew 18, 17, unless we hear from you first in regard to your repentance. And so in most cases, we would give the person time to repent and inform them of the Sunday that this would happen. And we'd want to exercise a a great deal of patience with somebody before telling the church. And again, we only come to this stage when somebody is unwilling to listen. If they listen, we we don't do this. If, If they listen, there's no need to do this. And we might even spend a great deal of time helping a willing person to fight a particular sin. There's going to be patience and grace as we, if somebody's willing to fight their sin, we're going to help them like that before we come to this point of telling it to the church. But when someone is not fighting their sin and, and they're continuing in their sin, we must pursue them in love the way our Lord lays out here. Now, there's times in Scripture when even this step should be skipped, and I want to show you this. Go to Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. Titus 3.10, as for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. And so you don't send the church after divisive people because what's going to happen then they're going to continue to sow their discord and all that's going to do is really allow more opportunity for the division. And so there's a time when you might even skip step three and jump right to what we call step four. In First Corinthians 5, another time when when the church kind of seems to have skipped this third step of telling the church, Paul was dealing in 1 Corinthians 5 with a very public sin, and the whole church already knew about this sin. And in that case also, he didn't tell the church since they already knew. He went straight to the, the next step, which is to remove them from the church. And and that's where we're going to go right now. Let's go uh, to number five then. Back to our text, Matthew 18, 17. Now the second part of that verse. Number five in our outline, remove them from the church. It says, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now this is the fourth step in the process. So number one, it was one person went to the person. Number two, you bring the two or three witnesses. Number three, we, we tell the whole church and the whole church goes. And now number four, they've refused to listen to the entire church. Jesus says, let him be to you as, as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, even this step is done with the hope of restoring the brother or sister. They're viewed as uh, Sorry. um, The the goal here is still to bring this person to repentance. We want to win our brother back, even in this fourth step. Now, to the Jews of that day, a Gentile was an outsider. And they were viewed as unclean. They were viewed as sinners. Paul speaks of the the common view of them in Galatians 2.15. He says, talking about him and Peter, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not... Gentile sinners. Paul spoke to the Gentile Ephesians about their past life. Ephesians 2.12, he says, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. And the point is, is that Gentiles were regarded as outside of the covenant community. Now, tax collectors, those were Jews, so they were inside the covenant community, but they were Jews who deserted their people to serve the Romans for profit. And so they're part of the covenant community, but they've forsaken it. And in some ways, they were viewed even as, as almost worse than the Gentiles. They were traitors of their people. In Matthew 5, 46 and 47, Jesus used Gentiles and tax collectors as an example of, of those who are the those with the lowest morals. They were kind of at the bottom of the holiness scale. And so Matthew five forty-six and 47 says, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? And so when Jesus says in our text, really, when Jesus commands in our text, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector, what he means is put the person outside of the church. This person is not acting like a disciple anymore. Disciples obey. Disciples take drastic action to fight their sin. We've seen that already. And this person is refusing to do that even when the whole church comes and exhorts them. And so we're to remove them from the church. Now, when we go to the parallel passages in the New Testament where this process seems to be referred to, the end result is disassociation with that person. And so, for example, and and maybe I'll go fast here. Maybe you want to turn to 1 Corinthians 5, but let me just read some of these. In 2 Thessalonians 3:14 and 15, Paul says if anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother and so have nothing to do with a person who doesn't obey the word of God. Again, Titus 3:10 reject A factious man after a first and second warning. The idea there, rejecting this person. I mentioned earlier the man in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 who was in a grievous sin. Well, Paul said about him, this is 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 2. At the end of that verse, it says, let him who has done this be removed from among you. And then again in verse 4, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. This is called here, this removing the person from the church, delivering this man to Satan. And it's called that because what we're doing is we're now putting this person outside of the church. And, and outside of the church, that's Satan's territory. Now, the final word on this is in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 11. It says, now, I am writing you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. If he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. And again, at the end of verse 13, Paul says, purge the evil person from among you. And so that's what we're to do. We're not to associate with this person. We're to, we're to put them out of the church if they call themselves, if they continue to call themselves a Christian, but refuse to turn from sin. Now, the good news in the first Corinthian case is that this person was, was won back. They repented and the discipline worked. And so in second Corinthians chapter two, Verses 6 and 7, Paul says this, he says, For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough, so you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Now, Paul talks about the majority here because the Corinthians were divided and only a majority of the people actually practiced the discipline. There was a, a minority division in the Corinthian church at that time that refused to discipline this man, but Paul says the, the, the majority kind of not associating, uh, not associating with this person, that's enough. Now that the person's repented, forgive him and comfort him and welcome him back. Welcome him with open arms. Welcome him in love. Because we've uh, now achieved the goal and the goal again is to bring the person to repentance, bring the person back into fellowship with the church and with God. But until that happens, we should not associate with the person who continues to call themselves a Christian but lives in sin. Now, we can and we should still talk to them. And we're never to be rude. That is not what it means when it says, let him be to you like a Gentile and a tax collector. We're not to be rude. We're not to try to avoid them maybe in the grocery aisle or if we see them, as we call it, uptown um we're not to you can talk to the person but we're not to have close fellowship we're not to pretend that everything is okay we're not to eat with them and invite them over for dinner and have a great time now we can invite them over for dinner and call them to repentance and we should seek opportunities to do so but our interaction with them is now to be limited to encouraging them to repent Because they need to feel the the loss of fellowship that's that's now intended to bring them back to the Lord. And so we put them out of the church, and with the 1 Corinthians, it worked. And so we know that it works. Whatever your experience is, this works, and God will bring back his true children. And if they come back, we're to be quick to forgive them and to welcome them back with open arms, just like the, the the parable the parable in Luke fifteen of the of the father who runs and 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 comes to his child and says, "My my son was dead, but now he's alive. Bring out uh what is it? Bring out the fattened calf and and uh, all of that. So that's what we're to do for this person." Now, this final step would also be done at a church gathering often before the Lord's Supper. And we would read that person's name and say, you know, all of you have gone to that person and they have still refused to repent. And so we would now instruct the church to let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Well, over the last few weeks, we've seen what Jesus commands us to do when another believer sins. And this is what any believer should do when another believer sins, even if that other believer goes to another church. Now, of course, we would not be able to put somebody out of another church. And each situation is likely going to have its unique elements and much wisdom is going to be needed in each of these kind of cases. But what we've seen when another believer sins, we're to show them their sin, we're to seek to win them back, we're to bring witnesses if we don't bring them back when, when the witnesses, when they don't listen to the witnesses. Number four, we're to tell the church. And then number five, if they refuse to listen even to the church, we're to remove them from the church. Let them be to you like a Gentile and a tax collector. Next week, we're going to come back and we're going to look at this one more time. And we're going to see what we called or what I called the promise. Of church discipline. There's some promises here that the Lord gives in verses 18 to 20. And so the the sixth command is that we need to know the promises. And we're going to see a promise there of guidance when we're involved in a situation like this. We're going to see a promise related to prayer when we're involved in a situation like this. And we're going to see a promise of the Lord's presence with us when we're involved in a situation like this. I want to just close by by again saying that our church is committed to following what our Lord lays out here, and we're committed to do that with much patience and teaching. And again, to remind us that to refrain from doing this, for a church or a, a person to refrain from doing this is really to hate our brothers and sisters and to really not care if they go astray and don't walk with the Lord. It would be to think that we know better than Jesus Christ, who is the head of the church. And it would be a false love that loves these people away from God and encourages sin, which is really no love at all. And so true biblical love would seek to win a brother or sister back when they stray into sin. And that's what our church is committed to. To doing now, you may have questions about this, and again, each case is unique. But if you have questions about this, feel free to ask. I'd love to talk to you about it um, and kind of help you just kind of think through what what the Lord lays out here. But let's pray, Father. We recognize from these commandments, just again, that you take sin very seriously that you are a holy God who hates sin and have saved us to separate us from sin and to make us like your son, Jesus Christ. And you've designed in your wisdom, you have designed the church as a body, a body that's united together, a body that when one member strays, it affects all of us. And you've also designed us as a body that when one member strays, all of us seek to win our brother back. And we pray that you would help us with that, Lord. We pray that you would help us be the holy people that you saved us to be. And that our church, this local church, would be a pure church, a holy church, a church that loves one another in a way that we would do these things that you command us to do. And we pray that if such a case ever comes, that you would help us to do it with your grace and your love and your care, For our brothers and sisters in Christ, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.